Unsilencing Stories is a podcast that reflects the voices of people in small towns and communities in Canada who have lost loved ones to the toxic drug supply crisis. Since 2016, more than 30,000 people have died from fatal overdoses in Canada, and that number continues to climb. The risk in smaller towns and communities is much higher than in urban areas because of a lack of harm reduction services and stigma against substance use and people who use drugs. This podcast is part of a community-based participatory research project facilitated by Erin Goodman, PhD, a faculty member at Kwatlen Polytechnic University in Surrey, BC, along with students Jenna Keeble and Ashley Pokernich. The aim was to assist collaborators in publicly memorializing their loved ones and expressing grief, as well as challenging silences imposed by dominant media organizations and stigma from society against substance use and people who use drugs. We hope these nuanced stories make a clear why the government needs to be doing more to prevent further deaths. Please note, this podcast contains information about overdose death, grief, and trauma that may be distressing to listen to. In this episode, you'll hear Jules Bedow interviewing Rachel McCarricher, North of Fort St. James, British Columbia. McCarricher remembers Blair Lauren, a friend who experienced a fatal overdose in Montreal, Quebec, in November 2021 at age 34. I live north of Fort St. James, the traditional territory of which has been this really interesting conversation because I had to find out what territory I was in, you know, in order to give thanks to residing on it for another interview. And I had sort of known and had thoughts about what it was, but then I ended up speaking to elders who were telling me all these different things. So anyway, long story short, I do know that it is caribou territory. Is there one person that you want to talk about today? Yes, I would also just like to say that there are so many people that I've lost, but I don't know that it would be appropriate to speak of them as individuals with their names and everything. But I'd like to talk about that more if we could. But yeah, I think you and I, Jules, share friendship with somebody that we lost. Who was that? One of us has to say her name. Blair. Yeah. How old was Blair when they died? Was a few years younger than me. I knew them, it felt like a lifetime ago. So I don't think that it ever came up, you know, how old are you and how old are you? <laughs> yeah, they were born in 1987. I know that because I, I got it wrong in one of my first postings. I put 1988 um, because I just always remember that they were like three years younger than me. That sounds about right. When and where did you meet Blair? I met Blair when ended up moving to Guelph, Ontario. I'm from Toronto. And I had been traveling and I met um, another woman who was like, come and live in Guelph. It's great. There's, you know, this house full of women and the rent's super cheap anyway. So I ended up moving there and then meeting Blair because Blair lived in Kitchener, I believe. And so we started throwing punk shows in the basement of this house. I don't know exactly the exact time that I met Blair but it was probably during a punk show and we were probably pretty young. Do you remember about what year it was? Uh, Probably 2005 or six. Can you describe a little bit about what Blair was like at that time when they were younger? Yeah Blair was like this perfect sweet creature. (laughs) They were so gentle and so kind and just had this like outlook on life that was so fresh and innocent. And I mean, there wasn't a huge age difference between us three years older, but I felt that it was just this innocence. It was this beautiful, 
cute. We ended up hanging out quite a bit. We ended up actually living in the same house for about a year. I gave Blair one of their tattoos uh, on their neck. Uh, We used to just sit around and talk forever. And like, you know, it was just so much fun. It was really like a very formative, innocent time. Can you give an example of that innocent outlook that you mentioned? So I don't remember when this happened exactly, but Blair had made me a mixtape and it was some of their music, some other music. I think there was music on there that we had done together. Very embarrassing and sweet. They made me a mixtape. It was like decorated in this 12 year old girl way. All these hearts, these like anarchy hearts. It almost felt like they kissed it, like the lip print. And it said, Rachel, I'm in love with you and your banjo because I used I play music, right? It was just like all these like little pictures of my dog and like written things. It was adorable. It was like something you'd make for your friend in elementary school, you know? So did you stay friends with Blair over the years? Yes. Not very close. There was a point where we had all lived in a house together and there was like 17 people living there or something. It was, I mean, crazy. And then after that, the house dissolved and everybody moved and went all their separate ways. And I actually had gone on tour with my band at the time, Thick as Thieves. And I'm not sure what Blair did. I think they went on tour too, possibly. So we talked back and forth a little bit, mostly because we were in a punk band together called Collateral Damage. And we had just made tapes and somebody had made the tapes. And it was like this curious thing where nobody could figure out where the digital copies were. So we couldn't make more tapes because, of course, we made like 10 (laughs) and uh, I think we were both really proud of it so every few years it would be like hey did you find out who has the digital copy of that thing I want to tape and actually just recently a couple weeks ago one of the band members sent me a tape because I had lost them so it was really cool timing to hear Blair's voice mine and Blair's voice screaming together was really cute that's so nice I can't remember what it was, when it was, maybe 2015, I was living in Saskatchewan and Blair wrote me an email sort of out of nowhere. And it was this beautiful, like long email and they explained that they were trans and all their feelings around it. And I, I remember reading that and just, I had to put, I was on my phone and I was reading this email and I put the phone down and I just went, (laughs) it was just so perfect. And I was so glad that they had found themselves and it was it's like sometimes you you know and you you just like watch somebody blossom into this into who they are and when it comes around it's like very amazing to see. Are you comfortable talking about Blair's death? When did you hear about it? I got an email from my friend. I know them by as dirt of course, but Allison. She wrote me and said, "Hey, did you hear the news?" And I was like, "Is it bad news?" or something along those lines. And she said that somebody from like the past had died and I knew that it was Blair. I wrote, I just wrote Blair question mark because I just knew, I don't know why I am just that type of person. Maybe I can sense things as they happen or even before they happen. I just, I don't know. I just knew. Wow. Did they tell you anything about what happened? No, not really. I think that everyone was kind of confused in the beginning. Maybe that's also a bigger picture issue, you know, the stigma around overdose or cause of death and things like that. Like it's, it's usually when people don't tell me what happened, I just assume that's what happened. Yeah, totally. It's almost like 
bad to say overdose because we're not there in Montreal. So it's like everything that we communicate or about it is like public on the internet. And then it's like, like we're like linking it to this bigger thing. And it's like so hard because you want to be like, oh, am I, do I not have the story right? Am I like embarrassing like Blair's parents and like family? Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, in the last, I don't know, five years, uh, between my partner and I, we have lost, I don't know, a dozen friends. And it's usually the same kind of story where it, you know, it's drug related or an overdose. And you can always tell because, you know, the family doesn't really want to make a big deal out of it because maybe it's like, shameful or embarrassing or whatever and like I understand that you know but it's also a tick in my brain where I'm like this was probably an overdose you know and sometimes you just don't get the answers sometimes have to assume from what I see yeah totally and it's like I'm always scared about making like the wrong assumptions and like you weren't close physically you know um we're 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 in BC and most of the people we're in rural BC it's like we don't even get to attend like the campfire Blair Memorial in Montreal you know and that's usually where or in Vancouver information comes out right like because people feel you're in a space that's like physical you can see engage someone's reaction and you know, that's the thing that really lets people open up and tell the story of what happened. And, you know, absent of that, it's all just internet. And I mean, I wouldn't, as a mother, you know, want people to be saying things about my kid, you know, I I would want to be private. Did you know that Blair used drugs? I didn't have like actual confirmation. I don't think that to me, it was any of my business, maybe I just didn't, it didn't like associate in my brain with you know, I didn't think of Blair and think of drugs or something. It was like in passing or whatever. Yeah, I guess I, I could have assumed or maybe had a feeling, but no, I didn't get direct confirmation of that from anyone. I guess it's like interesting because I felt like people were like shocked to like learn that. And then at the same time, I'm like, most people use drugs, especially in like an urban music scene. I don't know. Um, I, I all I think of is like, punks in Montreal like it's a no-brainer kind of um maybe that's just my own experience like I said you know like a lot of the deaths of people that we cared or care about people are usually located in a in a bigger city you know Montreal or Toronto or wherever have you known people in your in your geographical community now who have died of overdose I mean, I've lived here um, since 2019 this um, community struggles big time you know I volunteered at the out of the cold shelter here and thankfully it was like such a great place like really low barrier really like you know family like you know we'd get dropped off moose meat and everyone was eating properly and whatever but yeah it's 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 a huge struggle for sure here and I think I've probably known people here who have overdosed like similarly in amounts to friends that have overdosed over the past five years it's it happens a lot and I think also being you know Fort St. James for anyone who doesn't know is north of Vanderhoof of Highway 16 and it's the end of the highway that goes north there pretty much there's like a road that's like basically an ice road that can go north really really far and then you can loop around to Prince George but 
It's not something that you just like, oh, I'm going to go this way today and you're like Prius or something. It's like a nice road. So it's kind of like the end of the highway. And those types of situations create like supply issues. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot, like the supply issues, you know, with all the lockdowns and everything. I think that it's created desperation in people and they're making drugs that are killing other people a lot, you know, and I don't know that every overdose especially here is purposeful people think of overdose as a suicide and like oh, yeah. if you have you know if you've got drugs that are made in you know in a really messed up way and you have no way to check that i mean how how can that be a suicide you know it's it's an accident it's poisoning yeah it's like a lot of drugs are put together like locally with like sourced like very concentrated substances and then there's no there's no spectrometer checking in northern bc right now they just started a pilot project where you can submit samples after an overdose to a place in prince george and they'll send them to vancouver to get tested but you don't have a way to get tested before you put the drugs in the body in your body yeah exactly and i i mean here it's like a primarily indigenous population and we all i think uh understand at least you know either partially or fully the relationship between the RCMP um, and Indigenous peoples I mean they don't care really they don't help they would never try and find out somebody you know died of they would never send a sample anywhere if you know what I mean it's um it's sort of like an it's is what it is scenario and then move on which is creates a systemic issue right are there any harm reduction resources where you live? I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, I have, I know that there's a lot of resources for lots of different things. I'm not sure. I know that there's no, from what I understand, like safe supply or a way to check that. There are resources for people to, you know, get clean or get support. Like I said before, I was volunteering at the, uh, out of the cold shelter and, you know, I, as a former homeless person, I've been to a lot of horrible shelters, let me tell you. And this one, it's small town and it's low barrier. And, you know, like going to a shelter is normally, I mean, I'm a white person. I was not addicted to drugs at the time that I was attending those shelters or had any interaction. But even, you know, even so, the obstacles are so big and it's it feels like shameful to have to prove it to just get a blanket or whatever you know or a place to sleep which is actually most of the time more dangerous than just sleeping on the sidewalk um this is not like that at all it's it's great i think this really speaks to why so many people keep their drug use hidden you could be in in a group of people who also use drugs and still be embarrassed I think it's like such deep-seated from what I see anyway deep-seated like a like it's almost as if it's a badge of weakness or something or failure and it's super unfortunate because that creates a boundary or barrier for people to be able to function with their addiction or you know make choices that maybe lead them in a different direction. I mean, you don't, if you can't, if you can't like interact with the other people in your life without feeling guilt, that's horrible. It's horrible to live with, I can assume. Can you describe what Blair looked like? Well, 2005 or? (laughs) You're whatever you choose. (laughs) 
I would like to remember Blair in 2005, I think. I have this memory of Blair. We traveled one time to, we were racing, doing hitchhiking racing. I don't know if anyone's ever done that before, but we left from Southern Ontario to go to BC and we we're like giving each other the finger on the way being like, haha, you know, like I was with somebody and then, or they were with somebody and it was like this race to the end. But I remember what they were wearing so perfectly. It was like these ripped up blue jeans and a band t-shirt or something with this ripped up vest but the t-shirt had like a hood or something and blonde hair kind of spiky and all over the place (laughs) very very adorable how has losing Blair impacted you well we weren't super close by the end of it I mean our paths were super different I live on a farm in the bush and Blair you know in Montreal and the music scene is But our music always connected us. I think that when you see somebody from your past that you have this such innocent idea about, and then to know that they're not here anymore, it puts your own, like for me anyway, it put my own idea of life in sort of turmoil. Like why, why am I, you know, I have five kids. I, you know, have a farm, I eat good food and why, why did my life go so different? And would that have been my end if I chose something different? It sort of like brings your, your feeling of vitality into question. I don't know. It's um, hard to describe. It's like yeah. you just keep thinking about it. You keep thinking about it and thinking about it. And you can't wrap your head around the fact that they aren't available to even just be like, hey, what's up? after 10 years, even if you wanted to, or, oh, hey, I remember this, or look at this cool photo, like that is now done. And it's the finality of the doneness that makes me feel, it's almost like panicky. And again, you know, not being able to, not having anybody else around, you know, thankfully, my partner knew them too, but not having anyone else around to get that, it's sort of like, this thing happened. I attended a poor substitute for a memorial online because I couldn't be in around anybody. Life went on right, right away. And there's no way to make that any different. I wish I could have known them the 2022 Blair. I feel that gap. My partner always says this. He says, there's not much you can do in your life except leave a legacy. And he said, that's all that really matters is to leave a legacy, you know? And I remember he even has a song about it before we even met and um, it's true. And I think that that's something that Blair definitely achieved, you know, yeah. like when, especially with music and stuff, like those things don't just disappear into the void. Oh, I can hear your voice whenever I want. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Unsilencing Stories podcast. To listen to more interviews in the series, please go to www.unsilencingstories.com. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on the episode, message us at unsilencingstories at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and please share the project of other people you know.